This is New York State of Crime. A podcast exploring New York's most disturbing criminal cases. I'm Peter. I'm Brenna. And welcome back. Episode 7. Welcome everyone. Really glad to have you back. I want to thank the two individuals who left us reviews on iTunes uh, and Apple Podcasts. That was so nice of you. Even the one that was mean. Just just to be thought of, really. To me, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm always glad to be in the minds of haters, so good or bad, it's, it's all the same to me. And, I live inside you. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, obviously, thank you all for tuning in and listening. Um, what else? What, 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 what's up? Oh, we're trying a new recording setup this time. Uh, usually we're in the kitchen, and now we've set up in our bedroom. And I bought this silly-looking baffle thing off of Amazon to help keep uh, the noise of East Harlem out of this podcast. Uh, we obviously love our neighborhood and we love East Harlem, but... Uh, Goddamn, you guys are noisy sometimes. So the news in true crime, there's been a couple things that came out that you were talking about. Yeah, um, there is just a disturbing amount of crime in the subways, and it isn't just fear-monger reporting. Uh, People, well, we actually kind of talked about this last week, didn't we? Yeah, we talked about the... The guy who was stuck. The A-Train people. Ripper. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was it that had me that had me fraught this week? Was oh. people getting run over? Well, yeah, but we'll do an episode on that, that, mm. that, but there's a police robot dog. Oh, the police robot dog, right. So, um, probably some of you guys have seen this before. Um, this is something that I believe was, like, originally developed by... Uh, the DARPA program, which is, um, uh, it's the defense something, defense armament research, whatever, whatever the fuck it is. It's some kind of, like... Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they hold a contest every year, and uh, a lot of engineering students apply to this with uh, criteria, I believe the criteria every year is different, and I, I'm pretty sure about this, I'm not totally positive, but I'm pretty sure this uh, walking robot dog concept uh, was originally brought to us by a participant in this DARPA program, this contest. I don't even care where it came from, there's two main things. One is robot cops are terrifying, and the second is the uncanny valley of a robot dog. Like, take a look at this video. If that thing came crawling across the sidewalk at you, you would run for cover. Like, it is scary the way it walks around. And it makes me think of that little guy they have at the stop and shops who runs around and tells you where the spills (laughs) are, and he's got, like, this little smirk all the time, and you're like, what are you... What are you looking at? What oh. are you telling? What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? That he has some funny name anyway. But um, yeah, so it's just obviously not good. Like that's robot dogs are not the solution to crime. 
No. As a podcast about crime, we can firmly say robot dogs are not the solution. But really, the, the problem is it's just like, good, you're just putting more weird shit onto poor people for no reason. Basically, the, the, this thing is just bizarre as it somehow inhabits the uncanny valley, but it still really doesn't look like a dog. It has these like funny little backwards spring leg no, things no, no, no. and it doesn't really have a head it has like an instrument no, cluster no, no. is the best thing that i can describe it as with like uh eyes so to speak like light sensors probably a uh, some kind of laser thing to measure distance mm-hmm. to target communications equipment a loudspeaker so that you can talk to a suspect and this is this is how they're spinning it they're spinning it as we sick this fucking thing on someone who is uh like barricaded themselves in their apartment or something or has a weapon and is you know uh, otherwise sort of like nestled themselves in like a hard to reach area where anyone pursuing them would be open to to harm and not be able to defend themselves so they're spinning it as uh, something to keep police officers safe but in reality it's just like more fucking techno bullshit to harass poor people and people of color in their own goddamn neighborhoods. Like, they want to put this thing in high-crime areas, which means NYCHA public housing, selected bad areas of Harlem, the Bronx, uh, uh, probably, what, East New York, mm-hmm. parts of, like, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville. Um, so again, NYPD fucking harassing poor people with robot shit. Cool. Thanks, guys. In social science theory, we call this a technocratic fix, which means that you do something really fancy and technological uh, to be like, look, we're doing something, when actually it'd be ten times cheaper and easier to actually just fix the problem, but it's, like, sexier to do it through a technology. So that's what's going on. Um, We're working on um, some multi-part episodes that will really touch on some more of the in-depth issues of crime and carceral punishment and incarceration and racism in new york so just stay tuned for that it's always on our minds and especially with this robot dog i feel like we're like thinking harder about how crime is even defined in new york and just the scary turns that punishment the crime and punishment is taking these days anyway yeah we're we're going to work on a a slightly varied episode concept where we address not not just a single crime but use multiple instances of systemic crime as an example to expose the system that really fosters these things especially the uh, so-called random subway violence that is not random at all and and things of that nature that really warrant a deeper dive than simply the the facts surrounding one case Mm -hmm. so stay tuned for that coming up soon we're just working on some research to make sure we get some in-depth information before we bring it to you all but that's coming up and then um otherwise what else is new in true crime world well we just watched um this is not a new show but uh if you have the discovery plus streaming site which i got solely to watch true crime shows 
there is one on there that has multiple seasons called Evil Lives Here. So we watched the first two episodes. I don't think I can continue without upping my antidepressant, but it's basically um, interviews and dramatic re... what's the word? Dramatic... Reenactments. Dramatic reenactments of um, cases of people committing crimes where their family knows a lot about it um and basically like what it's like to live with a sociopath or psychopath or however you want to define it or somebody who is capable of such evil and like what hints they had along the way or what information was hidden from them and like just their experience of living with someone who commits such heinous crimes the first episode is a major i, I actually it's really interesting to go into it not knowing what he does they don't tell you right off until like the last 10 minutes like what the person does so um adjust if you haven't watched it and you're interested in the concept definitely watch that first season first episode which i just think gets at like i don't know if it really gets at anything but it's just horrifying about like the failures of mental health care but like not even because no, he gets not mental even. health care not even the failures of it's mental health care it's just the depths of someone who like even with mental health care and attention from family like the people who slip through the cracks i think that's what i meant rather than the failures the people no, who are still no it's not it's not even that it's the most horrific type of instance that you can imagine where you've done everything that you can do you didn't do anything wrong and everything still goes to hell that's that is the scariest right. thing because the parents try and get this kid help and then the kid still, uh, you know, he's in, like, residential treatment for the mental health issues. And then he, for years and years, then he still Over commits five this years. unspeakable um, violent, act. violent act. So anyway, um, it's horrifying. I don't know if I recommend it, but that's just been on my mind since we watched it. Something about being able to blame people involved in the story mm -hmm. and lay some kind of responsibility on them as a way to cope with our the... own inability to like describe what happened and yes. explain what happened yes right yes, exactly. like, it's easier yeah. if you look at something like that and say like wow they failed him that psychiatrist didn't recognize he was a sociopath whereas like in this case we're talking about it seems as all those things happen there's no one to blame so it's harder for us honestly i think this actually gets to the heart of the case we're going to talk about today and why i absolutely hate it is because there is none of that kind of thing in a clear way of some person to point at and blame even the person who arguably does the most harm it's like really hard to understand how they came to cause this harm um which we'll get into but i think that's what is the most difficult when we have a case where there's not a clear explanation when it's something so easy we can be like look XYZ person was sexually abused as a child and then they started sexually abusing other people and here's the cycle of abuse. Now that's something we can target and solve and stop in the future. It's but clear cut. When, yeah, when it's gray and when it's, well, this person had all the help in the world and loving parents and they still did this, well, like, then what, what could we do? We couldn't have done anything and it's really hard for us to acknowledge that. Um, so I think that's actually a good segue into this case which i'd like to talk about for the next few minutes and then never think about again yeah this is actually more related than i thought it was yeah when we, when we yeah uh watched 
this um, this episode. The evil lives here, yeah. Right. So content warning for this case includes addiction and alcoholism, death of children, vehicular homicide, and sexual abuse. This is the case of Diane Schuler, uh, the taconic wrong way driver. So this happened on Sunday, the 26th of July in 2009. The story begins at Hunter Lake Campground in Parksville, New York, which is uh, Sullivan County. Diane Schuler and her husband and her kids are at the campground. They're finishing up a quick weekend away, mm-hmm. and it is early in the morning. Yeah, so apparently they came to this campground a lot. Um, they had done this for a couple of seasons, which I think is fairly common for people from Westchester, Dutchess County, like where we're from, um, to like just get away somewhere like Lake George or up in the Catskills, right? So they were doing this as a summer getaway. So this is right in the middle of the summer. Uh, it looks like they just went away for the weekend. Diane is 36-year-old mother of two. She's married to Daniel. By all accounts, they have a great marriage. Mm-hmm. They're, like, super in love. Diane is a very successful uh, business executive of some sort for Cablevision. Um, she actually didn't finish her college degree. She went to community college and then got this job where she could rise through the ranks of um, the the administration uh, mm-hmm. without really doing any formal education and that seemed to work for her and at this point she's making six figures yes. in her job so she's supporting the family um, Daniel has a job as well um, but he makes like less than half of her salary so she's the main breadwinner for the family they have two kids together and um, you know Diane kind of her friends all describe her as someone who's really in charge of their life she directs their social life their home life she you know like directs what Daniel should do and how he should take care of the kids she helps plan parties for everyone in the family so she's just kind of this all-around do it kind of gal all right so this morning of sunday the 26th of july daniel says he woke up really early so around 5 or 6 a.m he was cleaning his boat so they had been taking it out on a lake he had to clean it up so they could move it back home um then about an hour later diane wakes up at seven she wakes up the children so her and daniel have two kids brian who's five and aaron who's two and then Diane's nieces are also with them. Emma, who's eight, Allison, who's seven, and Kate, who's five. Now, these are her brother's kids, uh, the Hans family. Right, her brother's name is Warren Hans, and these are all the Hans children. So she's got five kids with them right now, so that must be fairly stressful, getting five kids up and ready at 7 a.m., I can imagine. Okay, so at 9.30, the family leaves the campsite, Um, Daniel takes a pickup truck that the family had with a lot of their luggage and the family dog. And then Diane takes her brother Warren's minivan with the five kids. So they're just heading home. She's going to drop off her brother's three kids and then go home with her kids and get ready for the week, I assume. Um, So at 9.56, a little less than half an hour after they leave the campsite, they stop in Liberty, New York at a McDonald's. Diane goes in and orders food for all the kids. She orders a coffee for herself. And at this time, the cashier says that Diane is acting pretty normally. Security videos at this McDonald's shows that the kids were eating and playing and everything was fine at this point. At 10.33, a little more than half an hour after they got there, uh, Diane buys a large orange juice 
uh, rounds up the kids and they get into the car and leave. At 10.46, about 15 minutes later, uh, they stop to get gas and Diane goes into the store. She asks the clerk for gel cap analgesics or aspirins or something like that and they don't have any. The cashier that she spoke to said she seemed fine. The video from the store shows she was in and out within within seconds. Like she she walked in, walked to the back, looked down the aisle that had aspirins and things, didn't seem like she saw what she wanted, stopped briefly in front of the clerk, presumably to ask for the gel caps. There's no audio. The cashier says she is fine. At 10.58, they pull away from the gas station. And they're heading south on Route 17 at this point. Then around 11.37, in the area of Middletown, New York, Emma Hance, who's one of Diane's nieces, calls her dad Warren Hance, who is Diane's brother. Mm -hmm. And he's at work in Floral Park and they have a 47 second conversation and apparently emma says that they might be late diane speaks directly to warren and says it's nothing to worry about there's just some traffic um and that's the end of that conversation yes uh warren later confirms that nothing raised his hackles about this conversation there was nothing weird no strange tone of voice no no concerns to be had whatsoever. Between 11.30 and 12, a red minivan is seen being driven aggressively on Route 17 in Orange County, southbound uh, toward the uh, Middletown area. Several witnesses reported seeing presumably Diane's van, Mm -hmm. and it is important to note that during the time that these witness sightings were coming in, she was speaking to her brother on the phone theoretically during the time that witnesses say there was this uh, erratic driving going on. And then around 11.45, around the same 30-minute period when the aggressive driving was reported, a witness saw a woman who looked like and was dressed like Diane Schuler bent over as if she was vomiting on Route 17 outside of Middletown. And the red minivan later passes this witness's vehicle, and that witness says that the vehicle was zigzagging in and out of traffic a lot. It's important to think about just how fast Diane might have been going to not only catch up to, but then pass the, the witness mm-hmm. in their vehicle. And then at 12.08... Jackie Hance, who is Emma, Allison, and Kate's mother and Warren's wife, mm-hmm. um, so Diane's sister-in-law, calls Diane on the cell phone. They speak for about two minutes, and nothing seems wrong. Again, important to note that during casual conversation, nothing is wrong, even though all of this aggressive driving is happening. Like, there is already... Mm-hmm. Something is already wrong. At 12.13 p.m., the van goes through the Harriman Toll Plaza and uh, on the southbound section of the throughway, just past the plaza, this is between 12.15 and 12.45, witnesses see a red minivan 
uh, with children inside being driven by a dark-haired woman, which matches Diane's description, weaving aggressively through traffic, straddling lanes, blowing the horn, flashing the lights, tailgating, uh, basically every aggressive driving behavior you could exhibit. We're passing out of Harriman into Slotesburg now, and it's, uh, again, between between 12.15 and 12.45, presumably closer to 12.45, uh, a witness sees a red minivan pulled over just north of the throughway service area in Slotesburg, and a woman fitting Diane's description is sitting on the guardrail looking ill, like a, looking like she may have thrown up or like wanting to throw up. Uh, another witness says that the pulled over minivan uh, then enters a highway and begins tailgating him. The van unsuccessfully tries to pass him on the shoulder and then continuously lays on the horn for a mile. The witness pulls into the Slotesburg service area and heads for the McDonald's. Uh, the van follows him, heading towards the truck parking instead of the car parking, and then drives over a, a grassy median to get back into the car parking. Mm -hmm. Then around 12.55 p.m., a 17-second call is made from Diane's phone to a wrong number, and this is as they're passing into the Tappan Zee Bridge area. Just three minutes later at 12.58, Diane calls Jackie Hance at home, uh, and then Jackie later describes that Diane sounds out of it. And this is a two-and-a-half-minute call that ends abruptly. Apparently, the signal's lost, so the call just drops. Two minutes later, 1.01 p.m., Warren Hance arrives uh, just as this call is ending. Uh, he calls Diane back. They speak for about eight minutes, and at this time, Diane is going through uh, the Tappan Zee toll plaza. Uh, this is 1.02 p.m. She's recorded going through the toll plaza, and she is reported to sound disoriented and uh, just not sounding right. Emma gets on the phone. This is Warren Hans's daughter, Emma, speaking to her dad, and Diane pulls the car over. Uh, Emma sounds upset, but she says that her and the kids are all right, but she's just scared, and, and Aunt Diane is acting a little strange. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, this is when, and just to note, Emma's eight years old. She's eight years old. Right, so she's saying something, she sounds upset, she's saying something seems wrong with Aunt Diane at this point. Right. Um, and her dad's like, are you pulled over? She confirms they're pulled over, and her dad just asks her to name the signs that she can see. So little eight-year-old Emma looks around at the signs. She sees a sign for Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow and tells her dad. Um, Diane then gets back on the phone and confirms to Warren that this is where she is, and Warren says, wait where you are, I'm going to come and help you. At this point, he knows something is wrong. He has no idea what, but something is going wrong. Uh, with the car, with Diane, he's just not sure. Emma seems a little freaked out, so he's like, just stay where you are, I'll come find you, I'll meet you at Terrytown in Sleepy Hollow. Right, this is just south of the Tappan Zee Toll Plaza, directly across from the offices of the state police. So she is, she is here for about 10 minutes. Someone in the minivan dials four wrong numbers in one minute. This is assumed to be Emma, 
maybe one of the other kids, but probably Emma, mm -hmm. trying to reach her father. Mm -hmm. After this, the phone is left on the Jersey barrier in the pull-off area where they are stopped. Mm -hmm. Diane drives away with the kids. This phone is found later upon investigation. Mm -hmm. At 1.15, Warren Hans calls, but the phone goes to voicemail. About a dozen other calls also go to voicemail over the course of the next 20 minutes. So now they're driving uh, down this road without a phone in this car. Without there's, a phone no in the car. There's no phones anymore. No phone. And it seems like Diane had the only phone. I mean, the kids are all young, so they wouldn't have had their own phones. And this so, is also 2009, exactly. so it's not like the kids right. would have necessarily had phones. Definitely, yeah. So now they're just driving without the phone, having left it behind. Sometime after 1.30 p.m., Diane turns right from Pleasantville Road onto an exit ramp for the Taconic State Parkway, heading in the wrong direction. So she turns onto the exit ramp, thinking it's an entrance ramp. Right, and like any exit ramp, the appropriate signage is in place. There are wrong way signs. Mm -hmm. There are no signs marking it as the Taconic State Parkway mm -hmm. because it's best you not know that yeah. <laughs> because you shouldn't be encouraged to be going up the exit ramp. Yeah. So it only has the wrong way signs. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it's got one set of signs on each Either side mm -hmm. and each sign post has a red sign mm -hmm. with white lettering that says wrong way mm -hmm. and a do not enter sign like a classical red circle with with a line mm -hmm. through it and mm -hmm. a, probably a car like no car don't do it <laughs> yeah pretty much right uh, this is important to note because it is later said in defense of diane that the exit ramp was not marked mm -hmm. it was marked mm -hmm. so she gets on the taconic state parkway which if anyone's unfamiliar with this road i mean i guess we can describe it this is a pretty major artery between upstate New York and the New York City area, primarily like Westchester and northern New York City. The Taconic is a parkway, so it was built to be aesthetically pleasing. So it is tree-lined. There is a varying width of grassy wooded median between the north and southbound sides, uh, varying in width depending on the right-of-way and other natural features. Yeah, it's like, what, is it two or three lanes? Depending on the section, there, yeah. it's two or three lanes in either direction. Uh, but but still, the lanes are not particularly wide. Yeah. This roadway was built for a time when cars didn't actually go much faster than 55 miles an hour, though it is treated by most drivers as, as like a, a full highway. And there's basically no shoulder. There Mostly time. there is no shoulder. It's just like grassy embankment. Right. So she's driving the wrong way. She's driving... She's driving southbound, southbound into in northbound traffic. And she continues this way for almost two miles. As soon as she turns onto the off-ramp, the 911 calls start mm -hmm. coming in. The first call comes in as she's proceeding up the exit ramp. And uh, she forces a driver onto the grassy embankment and continues on her way. She is in the fast lane. Mm -hmm. Most people, myself included, don't drive the speed limit on the Taconic. 
the speed limit is 55 and most people are doing at least 65 mm -hmm. on here and it is estimated that she had to be doing at least 75 mm -hmm. maybe 80 to cover the ground that she did in such a short amount of time and all the reports that come in of her driving at this point says that she's staying in her lane she's not swerving at all that she's gripping the steering wheel 10 and 2 eyes straight ahead looking very focused yeah the witness reports say that there, the manner of driving while it's insanely aggressive is not like erraticness she is laser focused she's in her lane not all over the road 911 calls are coming in they're so stacked on top of one another that you know someone calls in and says i'm driving on the northbound taconic and they say yeah yeah the person is going southbound uh like the, the 911 operator already has had so many calls that they're just cutting off the people who are calling in and saying we're on our way we're on our way um because everyone is calling in right this is so frightening the area that she's traversing is one with sort of uh like gentle curves and a, a wide grassy median at 135 she finally makes contact with another motorist she she collides directly head-on with an suv carrying three men from yonkers on their way to a family party they were michael bastardi his son guy bastardi and their family friend dan longo they were killed instantly there's not a lot of words to describe that and i'm not i'm not going to i think that we all understand what would have been 120 plus effective speed collision looks like the combined speed of the bastardi's car and and diane's minivan mm -hmm. is a tremendous amount of force I'd like to mention now that we are not going to speak any more about the Bastardis and, and their friend out of respect for them and their families who made it quite clear in the years following this event that they had no interest in speaking about it and simply wanted to grieve and I don't know if you can move on from this but just to to let this exist in the past so we honor them now by by saying their names but we're not going to talk about them any further mm -hmm. so diane's minivan smashes head on with their suv these cars kind of ricochet off each other and then are sent in opposite directions one car to the middle median which was diane's minivan and then the Vasari's car goes off to the other side the Bastardi's car actually does make contact with another vehicle. Uh, those people, I believe it was a, a couple, mm -hmm. they were okay, did not mm -hmm. suffer any mm -hmm. life-threatening injuries, so we're, we're not going to bring their names into this. So Diane's minivan rolls into the median and catches fire. Mm -hmm. Witnesses pull into the median and try to pull Diane and the kids from the, the burning car. Diane, who is already dead, and they pull the kids out of the back. All, all but one 
of the kids died on impact. They took the the bodies from the burning car and and set them a little ways away. Mm -hmm. And then the first responding citizen realized there was one more kid in the car who had been underneath the others and he was alive. It was Diane's son who survived. And it's also reported that none of these kids were in car seats proper to their size and age, and none of them even seemed to be buckled into their seatbelts. So the people who died in this crash in Diane Schuler's car was Diane Schuler, age 36, Emma Hance, age 8, Allison Hance, age 7, and Kate Hance, age 5, as well as Diane Schuler's daughter, Erin, who was 2 years old, the sole survivor in the red minivan was Brian Schuler, who was at the time five years old. A few minutes after the first responding person took the bodies from Diane Schuler's minivan, emergency services arrived and controlled the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing that they did that was really important was. Um, some of the bodies had been taken out of the car, and then, of course, there's traffic stopped in both directions because of the crash. People trying to get a look at what happened, um, and news media starting to arrive, and some first responders put up, held up white sheets um, to block the view to preserve the dignity of those victims. I think it goes without saying what we think of people who have to look at the crash on the highway, Mm -hmm. or really anyone whose first reaction to something so blatantly horrific is, oh shit, I gotta see that. That is vile, and I, I hope to never understand the mindset of someone like that. Wouldn't you say a podcast is a little bit like that? And well, since I we mean, are we're, talking about it. We're talking about it to to honor the the victims of something heinous that is not just something that was perpetrated by one person, but by the life experiences of Diane, which we'll get to in a minute, and some of the societal norms and pressures that would have affected her. So I don't think it's quite right to say what what we are doing is necessarily the same as stopping your car to try to take pictures of a crash which killed eight and trying to get a picture of it. I'd like to think this is a little less crass, a little more respectful than that. And now we'll get into why this might have happened. This was a huge, huge controversy right as it happened and then in the time between the incident and the confirmation of the circumstances of this incident. So as if this couldn't get any more tragic, a few days after the incident, the autopsy report confirmed that Diane's BAC was 0.19. The legal limit for drunk driving in New York is 0.08. So that is uh, significantly higher than 
legal intoxication, and they also found uh, that there had been about six grams of alcohol in her stomach that had not yet been digested. It is estimated that there was about 10 shots of alcohol in her system, plus the little bit that was not yet digested in her stomach. Uh, there wasn't any food or anything else in there, just uh, just alcohol and presumably a little bit of iced coffee and, and orange juice. The report uh, states it was just like a gray liquid containing alcohol. There was also a rather high amount of THC in her system, which implies that she could have smoked a joint within as, as close as 15 minutes to this incident happening, uh, but perhaps in the window of 15 minutes to one hour previously. It is, uh, it's kind of hard to tell with marijuana usage the exact time of, of consumption. Mm -hmm. So this is more shocking than just the deaths of Diane and, and the kids. Now this entire image of who Diane was as a person is shattered. And it's shattered with such force and, and resoluteness and, and indisputable fact of a scientific examination that she was not who she appeared to be. But Daniel, Diane's husband, refuted this fiercely. Extremely what, as, fiercely. As the autopsy came out, he insisted Diane was not an alcoholic, that she did not use drugs, that she would never have used drugs or drank with these kids in the car, that she was a good mother, a good wife, loved her kids, and just never would have made these decisions. So this is the crux of the case, and I think why we're still talking about it today, and that it's not just written off as a car crash, uh, but as a whole true crime case, is because there is this chasm between what Daniel says about his wife and what many other friends and family say about what she would have done versus what the evidence suggests that she did, which in this case, uh, with the blood alcohol content uh, evidence and the, the THC use, it implies that she got into a car with some kids and drank pretty much straight vodka with, you know, her two kids and three nieces in the car and then smoked a joint while driving them home. So there's just this gap between what people say this person is and would do and what we now see they might be capable of. Yes, and what is more heartbreaking than those facts is that by everyone's account, she was a good mother. Mm -hmm. She did love her kids. She did do everything that she could mm -hmm. to make her family the best that it could be. She was known to buy Christmas presents months in advance and stock them in the house for not just her kids, but her brother's kids, her friend's kids, mm -hmm. just to be prepared. She made every effort to make sure that the kids had what they needed, you know, emotionally and, and practically. Mm -hmm. And these are things that you are not supposed to associate 
with someone who uses drugs as as a parent. Mm -hmm. So these things appear to be, and not just appear to be, they are in conflict, and there is no way to resolve that. Mm -hmm. They simply stand in conflict, and you must accept it. But Daniel couldn't accept it, so his explanation was to look into Diane's health history. She was suffering a tooth abscess, or like some sort of intense tooth pain at this time, Mm -hmm. and had been complaining of it for a while. She had been complaining of it that weekend, according to her husband, and he believes that something related to that tooth pain may have caused the accident. He insists that she would never have been drinking, And so it must have been a stroke or some other, uh, you know, sudden onset of pain that caused her disorientation rather than the intentional intoxication with drugs and alcohol. Right. The tooth abscess theory is the way that it's presented by Daniel is an incredible reach, but it is documented that for not just several months, but I believe over a year Mm -hmm. prior to this, there are medical records that show Diane was at the dentist for Mm -hmm. uh, something to do with her teeth, and it was never resolved. Like, she was, I think she was, like, checked out, evaluated, perhaps some work was done to fix this, but she stopped going to the dentist before it was completed. Wasn't it... On the documentary, they showed that she was given, like, narcotic pain medication for this tooth abscess at some point. At some point. Yeah. Not not particularly close to the not incident, Not per- close to this incident, but just that there was a history In the past. of... And it was so bad. I'm just pointing out that it was so bad that they did prescribe narcotics for it. Yes. And um, there's also, I don't remember the details, but she possibly was also prescribed Ambien which is a drug to help you sleep that can also cause, like, um, lucid, like, you're not conscious, but you're acting like you're conscious. Like, you could just be driving a car, frying an egg, talking to somebody, but you're not all there. Yeah, sort of like um, a false... Consciousness? Sort of of like a a false consciousness or like... um, like a waking dream, perhaps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely a step beyond what is considered to be typical sleepwalking, because usually you can't really converse with a sleepwalker, mm-hmm. but someone who is under the adverse effects of Ambien may be able to mm-hmm. conduct conversations. Mm-hmm. And so in the first few press conferences after the autopsy information was released, Daniel and Diane's family insisted that she never ever drank to excess or used drugs and alcohol um later as investigations progressed it came out that multiple family members or friends of diane's knew she used marijuana recreationally after her kids went to bed to help her sleep um just to to help her relax from the day which it's not a crime i mean it was a crime in new york but like it's not a you know in itself a sign of somebody with like a dependency like if you're just if you're in control of when you're using it that's not any different than having a glass of wine when your kids go to bed so uh, just just to reinforce this smoking weed as a parent does not automatically make you a bad parent mm-hmm. now let's remember the type of lifestyle and 
a type of control that Diane exerted over her her daily life, mm-hmm. um, you know, of herself and, and of those in her mm-hmm. surroundings. She was a top-level executive. She was used to being in control mm-hmm. and maintaining that kind of control over, like, your, your workplace environment. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, yourself takes a lot of effort. And she was doing that. She was dealing with the kids. It is shown later that Daniel is not particularly proactive with with raising the kids. Mm-hmm. He does as he's told seemingly yeah. by Diane, mm-hmm. but it, it really seems like Diane was doing basically everything. And so wanting to smoke some weed and go the fuck to sleep for a little while before she had to get up, presumably quite early, to go to her job again, deal with the kids, etc. every day, that is something that is understandable. And And while it was technically criminal under New York State law at the time, it is not morally criminal, and we do not suggest that it is. I think this is a good time to bring up her upbringing. So Diane's mother left their family, like, just up and and left. Um, There's not really a lot of detail as to why, um, but left her family when Diane was quite young and she did not have an ongoing relationship with her mother. So it's strongly implied by those who knew Diane that she was trying to make up for her mother's failings and prove that, you know, it wasn't that hard to be a good mom um, and that and to, to make up for the mother that she didn't have. And so that's also why this added pressure from herself internally to be this um, superwoman mother who worked and uh, you know had a relationship and was a mother um and her friends also say you know she was just a very a private person private person who didn't share things no but i was just gonna say that she was insecure about herself you know Mm, always mm -hmm. felt like she wasn't you know the pretty one in the room and so when daniel showed interest in her she felt like this was her chance to prove it you know she was valuable as a woman, desirable, and, like, to be a wife. So that was also important to her. Um, and, and you know, just all of these roles together um, were important to her to prove that she could do those things uh, capably like her mother couldn't. And it was also seemingly important to Diane to appear emotionally resilient. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't talk to any of her friends, even her closest friends, about any problems at all or, or really any kind of, you know, expected kind of things you would talk to your friend about. Like, mm-hmm. any anything that was heavy or emotional uh, about your family or, or any life struggles, um, all of her friends said she was unfailingly positive. And even her husband said that she didn't open up to him much about mm-hmm. those type of things he insists that if she felt the need she would mm-hmm. and she hadn't done that yet mm-hmm. right and uh i think it's it's also important to note now uh going back to uh, dan's mother leaving her family this this left her with her father and several brothers yeah. and an all-male household mm-hmm. and this is absolutely speculation but it has been rumored by some people close to this case that she might have been sexually abused at home. Mm-hmm. And 
everyone knows by now what sexual abuse can do to a person, especially when it happens when you're a child. Mm -hmm. It manifests itself in all kinds of ways, um, and not just in the way where the victim themselves then becomes an abuser. Right, but that you take it out on yourself through like self-harming behaviors or ways of numbing yourself, like drinking a lot or smoking a lot or just trying to be perfect and punishing yourself when you're not perfect. So... And this is something that is reinforced by society uh, upon women in general. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it isn't too much of a stretch to believe that perhaps her coping mechanism for for this potential abuse would be to double down on what society already expected of her as, mm-hmm. as a woman. Mm-hmm. So the theories, I mean, there's competing theories going into what caused this crash. We've already talked, I guess, a little bit about Daniel Schuler's theory that it was purely an accident caused by a medical event. Uh, based on the medical evidence, this does not seem likely. So the other theories and things that we can talk about is, you know, whether this was an accident in the sense where she did not intend to harm people, but was, you know, obviously knowingly getting into a car under the influence and then caused this crash, or whether Diane got into the minivan with the intent to harm these kids or commit suicide through a car crash that day. What do you think about those theories? Uh, this this is a tough one to discuss because it could really track either way. Like I personally don't doubt that Diane loved her family and kids. I really I think it's wrong to assume that she got in the car that day with this in her head. Mm -hmm. I think it got into her head through a really, really unfortunate spiraling Mm -hmm. of perhaps things in and out of her control Mm -hmm. that day. We really have to go back to the start here because she, while she took the kids to McDonald's, she didn't eat anything herself. So she was on an empty stomach Diane and her husband had been drinking the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel doesn't he's he doesn't confirm this at first, but like other details, as time goes along, he admits that they did have a couple drinks uh, in the evening mm-hmm. uh, when after they'd put the kids to bed on on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's possible that Diane was feeling maybe a little bit hungover, mm-hmm. maybe tired. Mm-hmm. She did get up early. Not as early as her husband, but still early enough on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And she got stuck with the kids. Mm-hmm. Her husband took the dog yeah. in his truck. And, right. and uh, they slowly admitted to keeping some alcohol at the, at the campground. Supposedly a singular bottle of vodka and a bottle of Absolute was found broken in the driver's side of the minivan when it was investigated by authorities. So she is at McDonald's, she gets her iced coffee, she doesn't eat, and on the way out is when she buys the orange juice. 
And this is, I mean, for me personally, I believe this is damning because I think that she was probably already getting stressed out from dealing with the kids at McDonald's. You know, they get wound up on sugar. They're at the play <laughs> place. Got you know, the play place. Yeah. And orange juice is a common mixer or chaser. Uh, you know, vodka and orange juice is a screwdriver. Yeah. Very common drink uh, in general, but also common amongst people who are alcoholics. And, like, as someone who, like, had some near brushes with alcoholism in the past, you know, I can tell you that, like, orange juice or a fruit juice and vodka is not the most detectable thing in the world to others. And it's it's pretty easy to drink. And so that's, you know, that's that's why people do things like this. And she could have been doing that because, as Daniel su suggested, maybe her tooth was hurting. She didn't have Advil in the car. She just thought, okay, let me just take the edge off for, I'll t put one little glug of vodka in this orange juice, take the edge off this pain so I can concentrate on driving, stop at the Sunoco and get painkillers, right? Because they stop at the Sunoco 15 minutes after the, the place. So it could have been that, or it could have been she just had a headache and was nauseous from a hangover and just thought, oh, okay, tiny bit of hair of the dog, take the edge off. I, I really believe that she started out the drinking thinking it was under her control and just something to uh, get her to the next step of managing this day of hectic activities. Yeah, under her control is important to note because this is something that people who have substance abuse issues believe that they can do. Um, especially if someone like Diane, who has perhaps been drinking this way as, as a coping device for a long time, mm -hmm. you get good at doing this. Yeah. And now some of the prevailing arguments against the facts of the autopsy and, and against Diane actively drinking in the car is like, oh, how did you drink in front of a bunch of kids? How did you get the vodka into the orange juice? How did you this? How mm -hmm. did you that? And... Those are not really valid things. I can think of plenty of, like, 30-second intervals mm -hmm. where you've loaded the kids into the car, you go into the back, futz around, the vodka's back there, you splash some in your orange juice, go up to the front of the car. Um, I mean, Didn't... the vodka bottle was found in the front of the car, right. so it made its way up there eventually, and I mean, that is... Um, that's brazen. Right. That is fucking brazen. Well, I... And I... It could have been at the McDonald's. It could have been stopped at the gas station. Yeah. But again, it was it was found in the driver's side of the car. Right. Under the seat. Under so, I the mean, seat. you could have just been like, oh, my shoe's untied. Glug, glug. I mean, easy. I mean, they're eight, seven, and five. And yeah. five and two. They're not going to be like, what do you have up there? Like, they're not going to be asking questions. No. Well, this uh, is this is also the, the thing that bugs me about this, though, is is why did you have to... Why did you bring it up front like right. that? It was a large-size orange juice in a, yeah. a sippy cup. Not a sippy cup. A cup with a straw. A straw. Mm -hmm. um, like a fountain drink cup. Yeah. So, theoretically, you put enough in there once and yeah. You, yeah. you go along with it. And then there's also the question of how she smoked... When did she smoke the weed? When did she right. smoke it and how did she do it without the kids knowing it? Unless they, she just did it in front of them. I mean, we don't know, obviously, because Brian doesn't remember anything and everyone else. Right. The, that's, that's the other thing that people who are on 
Diane's side, or at least don't believe that she did this Intention. intentionally. Uh, say, oh, when did she smoke the joint? And, like, again, as somebody who smoked a lot of weed, it's not that hard no. to quickly choof a whole fucking joint. Like, I smoked a joint at a concert once two seats away from somebody's dad. Right. But it's, again, like, leaning over like I was doing my shoe. Right. <laughs> right. Not very difficult. Not hard. Um, Especially if the person you're hiding from does not know what the smell means. Right. And it's entirely possible that they that they didn't. Yeah. Um, and this is the part where I believe she has to switch from I got this to damage control mm-hmm. mode. Because what, what happens often, some people call it being cross-faded mm-hmm. or something, but like if you drink a lot and then smoke a lot, the effects of both the weed and the alcohol mm-hmm. are uh, intensified you know, beyond, like, a linear factor. It's it's definitely exponential. You know, so she's she's sipping on her, her vodka, probably consuming more vodka than she might intend to because mm-hmm. perhaps the kids are annoying. Maybe she's just, mm-hmm. like, fucking sipping it absentmindedly while mm-hmm. she's driving. Or she again, didn't measure it. She didn't measure it. Or, yeah. again, she hasn't eaten, so it's going right yeah. to her stomach. Mm-hmm. And then she smokes the joint. And, you know, uh, again, as somebody who smokes like a fucking chimney, you don't always smoke the whole joint. Sometimes you smoke a little bit. Sometimes you smoke half of it. But she smoked the whole thing to her face after she had already been drinking, and it probably just smacked her Mm -hmm. way too hard, way more than she was expecting. I think what makes a lot of sense to me as someone who likes to be in control is that once you realize you've made a mistake or gone too far with something, you're not going to admit that you've made a mistake because exactly. you're in control. Right. So I think I read some uh, something on Reddit that described this and it made so much sense to me that, you know, she may have fully realized I should not be driving these kids. I've done too much. But she's not going to pull over and call her brother and say, I'm too high and drunk to drive your kids home. She's just like, no, we're, you know, an hour away from home. I can pull it together. And so she doubles down. And this is why when you see her driving, she's focused. She's like, if I just focus, my brains, right? You know, she was known to be very smart and very, like, quick to observe things. and like, good at math. So, like, she's just like, if I can just focus and keep my eyes on the road, like, that won't betray me because I have the right goal in mind which is to get these kids home safe so it's fully i think that's my theory that like she really just realizes she goes too far but not enough to be able to admit and ask for help and she's just like if i can just get to warren's house and drop these kids off and then we'll be fine yeah uh it's i want to just make sure that we understand that Diane Schuler was not a stupid person. No. She could do complex math in her head. Mm-hmm. On several occasions, it's she does it in front of people. You know, she was an intelligent person, a high-level executive in charge of quite a few people and quite a few important things for a, you know, multimedia, like, national television operation. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's what I lean towards is just that this is the case of somebody trying to be in control so much while, like, losing their grip on it and not being able to admit, like, I've lost my grip on this reality and control. 
um, and just doubling down so much on the image that she wanted to portray that she made this fatal error in judgment. Yeah, and, and this is backed up by the witness accounts of her posture mm -hmm. in the vehicle and the eerie precision with which she was driving, mm -hmm. even though she was driving so aggressively, yeah. which is just, I hate to say this, but it is strangely impressive that someone with that much alcohol in their system, so impaired in that way, could manage to do this. It kind of makes sense because, right, she's in the fast lane, which would have been the right hand from when she's driving the right hand lane so she mm -hmm. just thinks she's on a two-lane highway she probably she's thought she was right going southbound on the southbound side or she thinks she's lane. on a, a, a not on the taconic on a road that has cars right without a median where you're just this is possible too this yeah. is why i think she's on the right hand she's staying in the lines because she thinks she's in the right lane until somebody comes hurriedly at her and she may have even thought these people are in the wrong lane because yeah. she's so focused on this task. So anyway, I think, yes, I think that's why this case really gnaws at me is because ultimately, like, the villain is not Diane Schuler. It is, I don't know, this is reductive, I guess. The villain it is partially just the pressure that society puts on women to be perfect everything and that it's unacceptable for a wife, mother, successful career woman to struggle with something uh, or to be unhappy about something or to admit that she needs help and that she was so invested in upholding this image of being the perfect everything that she was not able to ask for help even when she knew she probably needed to for the sake of the safety of others. Yeah, and... It's also been speculated that she wanted to kill herself and wanted to kill the kids. And I I don't think that no. there... One, I don't think that that's even remotely fair to begin speculating because no one can ever know, first of all, what exactly was going through her mind. And second, it doesn't track with the rest of her behaviors towards her family up until this point mm -hmm. um it's it's speculated that you know because of how much alcohol she had consumed maybe she like reached a breaking point that she was like i'm sick of my husband i'm sick of these fucking kids i'm sick of doing everything myself i'm sick of all of this pressure and the absurdly high standard i have to hold myself to mm -hmm. just to feel like i am like just worthy of like basic respect as mm -hmm. a person that she may have felt that way and decided that she was done and she was taking the kids with her mm -hmm. in some kind of statement or something right. and that that I think is a big reach I think it's a lot more likely that she was like you know I can do this it's just an hour in the car, yeah. I have done this drive before, you know, I think that if she wanted, if she really wanted to die and she wanted to kill everyone in that car, there are better ways to do it. And there, I mean, there were better ways to do it even on that road. Like there are plenty of bridges that run over the Taconic. There are plenty of 
solid objects to run a vehicle into any anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I just don't think, even if you're thinking like a family annihilator mentality, that she would have taken her nieces out with her. Like, I think if, yeah. even if she felt that way about herself and maybe even her own family, including her kids, which I don't think she would have, but like, even if we go that far, I just don't think it's within the psychology that you would also just take away your brother's children too right and i also i mean i'm just thinking of like an analogy of yeah like you're saying doubling down on like i can just make it it's another hour like think about like at the end of a long trip when you're really tired and like you know you're like a little too tired to be driving but you're like almost there like i feel like that's that's a a feeling i can identify with no i can keep i can force my eyes open i'll be fine oh i mean it's it's definitely a feeling I can identify with, and I, I think probably anyone who lives upstate or, or anywhere that you have to be in the car for several hours on, on a you know regular or semi-regular basis. I mean, there's been times where I was on my way home from something or other, and I was like, you know, I don't really want to stop. I'll just get like a couple five hour energies and and just like power it <laughs> right, through for right. the last hour and I you know I spent that hour in a very similar position right. like sat forward hands death gripped on the fucking wheel staring straight ahead because I was losing control of my ability yeah. to stay awake I right. was like micro sleeping yeah so this yeah, it's is really scary this is you know, it's not an abnormal thing to have done that, and this is not something that is rare. People definitely drive tired all the time. Pull over and sleep. They have a lot of road signs in Ireland that say this, and I've never seen them in the U.S., and it just I always makes me think, like, tired driving is just as dangerous as drunk driving. Absolutely. Um, like, just pull over and sleep. Like, I know nobody wants to, but it's really so scary and multiple people in my family have had minor car accidents from falling asleep while driving right so i'm hyper aware of it now um even though i don't drive much anyway i think we should talk about uh or there's something i wanted to say about the documentary so the documentary there's something wrong with aunt diane is where we got a lot of the information here directed by liz garbus for hbo and there's a moment in this documentary where Daniel's sister, right? So it's Diane's sister-in-law, mm-hmm. is helping Daniel with uncovering this truth of what happened to Diane. Like tr- They're trying to get more information out of the autopsy. They think there must have been something wrong with the autopsy report that said she was intoxicated. Yes, they actually raised a bunch of money mm-hmm. to have everything retested mm-hmm. by an independent investigator mm-hmm. and... Um, that investigator confirmed the results. Right. But yes, yeah, so they come out of the meeting where those results are confirmed and where nothing changes. And we see, I don't remember her name, but we see the sister-in-law uh, pull out a cigarette and say, I need a cigarette. And the documentary, whoever's got the camera, like, zooms in on her face and she says something like, None of, no one in my family knows I smoke. Now they're going to know. Mm-hmm. And it's this, like, moment where... Of irony because they're talking so much about there's no way Diane could have been this deep in alcohol use or drug use without us knowing but then you have this other family member saying yeah I smoke cigarettes for stress all the time and nobody knows and it's just showing how easy it is to hide a behavior like that especially for women who are stereotyped as being in control of those things more so than men 
Yeah, and it would have been especially easy for Diane to uh, not just hide this drinking, but just simply drink as much as she wanted and then be in bed before her husband got home. So there was ample opportunity for Diane to just do do whatever she wanted and, and no one would know. I mean, in a house that she managed, mm-hmm. don't you think that she could hide oh, a yeah. bottle of vodka and where no one would ever find it? Mm-hmm. She may not even have to. I mean, Daniel just seems like such a... Like, he was just a yes man, like... Yeah. You don't think he would have questioned her, because you didn't expect it. She was the one who had it together. It's not interfering with her life. He's not gonna, like, be marking this vodka bottles with Sharpies, like... Right. Yeah, I just don't think, so... And, I mean, eventually he did admit that he and Diane did drink sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, of course, that's code for probably more than they're letting on. Yeah. But there, I think if there was any actual alarm, he would have admitted it by now. So if she was already drinking to excess regularly, she was hiding it. Which, yeah. again, I think just builds, supports my theory that this is about image and control over your life and just that she lost that control. And I think that is the thing that makes the most sense to me as a woman who faces similar pressures from society. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some of the popular culture output that is related to this case is just interesting to mention. Um, There is a Law & Order episode that's based off of the concepts in this case. We have not watched it, but it's called Doped. And then Stephen King wrote a short story after reading this case to try and explain, to try and, like, talk through, like, how someone would be driven to do something like this. And that story is called... Herman Wook is still alive, and it's in the collection Bazaar of Bad Dreams from 2015. The general theme of everyone's reaction to this was, how could she? Yeah. Not necessarily agreeing on the reasons, but simply, how could she do this? How could this happen? Yeah. But I think, I think more plainly it was, how could she do this? And I think, how could she do this? Like, I do think the gender aspect is huge here. If this was a father, I think the story would be so different. Yeah. I think because you have this tragedy of a mother and her daughter and her three nieces dying in the car accident, her son almost dying, and the fact that the mother is the one who caused it. Like, we want to see a mother as a victim, mm-hmm. but she's the perpetrator. And, like, that is so hard for us to reconcile in a society that puts mothers on this pedestal. And that is, in my theory, partially the reason that caused Diane's downfall is that pressure. So then it's, like, this double bind of, like, the reason the story is so arresting to us is because it's this woman who's perfect and didn't do anything wrong but this is the thing she did wrong. Like the, Her last act was the slip-up, and then it's just this unspeakable evil. And it's just so hard for our brains with the mental map of reality that we have around what women and wives and mothers should be. It just doesn't. That's why it's so hard, and that's, I think, why we keep going back to this case. And, I mean, also to mention, like, there's also something to be said about the fact that, like, women are not seen as alcoholics the same way men are seen as alcoholics. And, like, alcoholism in women is not recognized as much because it comes with different patterns of behavior. And this is also, you know, written about by social scientists. So, yeah, just a couple of 
themes there that I think are part of the reason, like you said, why this case comes back to us. It's how could she do this? How could she do this? Mm -hmm. And her husband just reinforced these stereotypes mm -hmm. by his virulent defense of, of these, you know, angelic motherly qualities in her for, for way, way too long. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he even went as far as suing Warren Hance, Diane's brother, for uh, the minivan being defective and not in good repair. He sued, I think he sued the state mm -hmm. or the DOT for inadequate signage on the exit ramp yeah. of the Taconic. And uh, not, none of these lawsuits came to anything, uh, but it, it just goes to show that he was trying so hard to keep this sort of crystalline image of Diane from cracking even further and, and you know, eventually blowing apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also just want to mention that the sole survivor of this crash... Brian. ...is Brian Schuler. He's in his teens now, and uh, it's really hard to think about what he's gone through. Um, you know, just growing up with the knowledge of what happened to his sister and his mother and his three cousins, and Daniel did not seem to have an easy time of becoming a single father. Uh, the family suffered financially with the loss of Diane's income, and uh, Brian, is, as far as we know, does not remember anything from the crash, which might be a bit of a blessing, but, you know, we know that trauma compounds uh, whether you remember it on the surface or not. So I just think he's been through so much through this whole thing. And just like my thoughts go out to him that he's managing okay now because that's just so horrible to think about. Yeah, he, he is um, unfortunately permanently injured mm -hmm. from this. Um, I believe he lost sight in one eye at probably some kind of brain injury as well. And you know how tough it is for uh, for kids to get adequate care sometimes, period, let alone kids with injuries and, and such grievous ones uh, like Brian's. And, you know, he's, he's alive and sort of okay, but the the weight of this has to be almost infinite on on his shoulders and i i hate to say it but i don't see how this is going to get any easier for him as he grows older he's only going to understand more and more about what happened and like you said even if he doesn't remember it that doesn't change the reality that he lives in now mm -hmm. Well, the other little bit of glimmer that came out of this was that Jackie and Warren Hance, who lost their three daughters in the crash, actually had a fourth daughter a few years later. Right, So yeah. the three Hance girls who died in the crash have a, you know, a living sibling, uh, which obviously does not replace them, but it's just a little glimmer of hope that they were able to, you know, like, build on to their family while mourning 
three people. I mean, I can't even imagine. So Brian also has a cousin, which is nice to share this burden with. And they also started the Hans Family Foundation to honor those daughters and they raise money for self-esteem education for young girls, which is very nice. Can you believe that some people tried to give her shit for having another child? Yeah, that is, I mean, people will give women shit for literally, for literally anything. anything. That's another thing we'll learn here, but like, yeah, no, I mean, anyone who's... I have no idea what it's like to lose a child, but, like, it just, you're, we're in no place to question what anyone decides to do after they lose a child, let alone three in a way like this. So, you know, if she wanted to have more children, that's... That's her right, and it's her, her will yeah. to have another child, or to not, or, or to, to not. <laughs> do anything with her life to just get by this fucking tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that fourth daughter's name was Casey. Um, Casey Hans. So she is another living, uh, I wouldn't say victim, but, you know, living member of this family who's tied forever to, you know, this case that her existence is kind of related to the fact of her sister's deaths, which is also kind of horrible, but, you know, that's, yeah, that's again. life. <laughs> Again, another just incomprehensible relationship caused by this. I mean, Casey may not have ever been born as Mm -hmm. herself if this didn't happen. So, you know, a new life is brought into the world and is just inexplicably and horrifically bound to this... So this case is just unspeakably sad, and we, not really we, honestly, I really wanted to do this case because it struck me, not really, I don't really know why it struck me the way that it did, maybe because it just doesn't really make any sense no matter what way you think about it, and it's just fucking devastating. Every possible explanation is more gut-wrenching than the last. Mm -hmm. These are the sources for this episode. So to research this episode, we used the documentary Something's Wrong with Aunt Diane, directed by Liz Garbus for HBO. New York Magazine's coverage of the case by Steve Fishman and Lindsay Robertson. Timeline was provided by Newsday.com. Well, that was just fucking sad. If any of you listeners have any thoughts about this case, because this was so fraught and uh, so contentious, so contentious, we always welcome your your comments and emails. But especially on something like this, share with us your thoughts about this. Our email address is newyorkstateofcrime at gmail.com. And also feel free to leave us a rate or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to the podcasts. That helps other people find and listen to us. You can also visit our Instagram. New York State of Crime at Instagram. 
and you can also visit our website for all the information from this case and all our other episodes. New York State of Crime Podcast.com. Alright, so we will see you next week for another case. Stay tuned with New York State of Crime. Let's